This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Good morning. Thank you so much for being with us. If you have a copy of the scriptures, please open to Paul's letter in the New Testament to the Galatians chapter 5. If you don't have a copy this morning of the scriptures, if you'll raise your hand and leave your hand up, some ushers will bring you a free copy of the Bible and you can take it home with you today and also be able to follow along. We're going to look at a number of verses, so it'll be very helpful if you can have a Bible and read along with me. We're going to begin reading in verse 13, Galatians 5, all the way through the end of the chapter just for context. Today we'll be looking closely at verses 16 down through verse 21. So Galatians chapter 5, begin reading with me in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And now verse 16. But I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, And things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. 
That is God's Word. And I believe God is calling us again today to live our Christian life with the Spirit, to stand. This whole chapter has been about standing, walking, running, living with the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, keeping in step now with the Spirit, fighting the good fight of faith, the Christian life by the Spirit. Last week, if you remember, our main point was we are set free in Christ to love others. We ended with verse 15. Again, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Ironically, as we all know, Christians and churches are famous or infamous for a lack of love. Alexander Strzok is a pastor in in a church in Colorado, and he's also taught at a Christian university there, and he's traveled and written books, and he serves a lot of different churches. He's influenced us through his writings. His focus is on the local church, and he has actually written an entire book. It's available in the bookstore on verse 15. It actually has Galatians 5.15 on the cover. It's entitled, If You Bite and Devour One Another. Catchy title. Subtitled, Biblical Principles for Handling Conflict. And in this book, he tells this story. Chapel Hill Church, a large Bible-believing church, invited an evangelist for a week of special messages. And at the end of the week, the evangelist challenged the congregation to develop a deeper devotion to Christ and to be more committed to sharing the gospel. Then, without any showiness, coercion, or endless appeals, he invited people to come to the front of the auditorium and kneel with him in prayer. His messages had touched many people's hearts, and they responded to his invitation. But this church was not accustomed to altar calls. And as the meeting ended, a prominent church member expressed to all within earshot his disagreement with the evangelist's altar call. His loud, angry words and facial expressions shocked those around him. He accused the evangelist of unscriptural practices and emotional manipulation even threatened to leave the church if the leadership didn't deal immediately with the situation. Upon hearing the angry man's accusation, some people jumped to defend the evangelist. They saw that God had used the evangelist to revive their spiritually dry church and supported his challenge to greater evangelism. They accused those who opposed the altar call of being narrow-minded traditionalists who always resisted change. They also accuse them of being insensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading and of not caring about the lost. Other people, of course, sided with the angry complainer, claiming that the evangelist was preaching a gospel of easy believism. They made slanderous remarks about the evangelist's motives and character and labeled anyone who agreed with him as liberal They also attacked the church leaders, of course, saying that they lacked spiritual discernment. They went so far as to ask the church leadership to resign, claiming that they had sinned against the church 
by inviting a wolf in sheep's clothing to preach. This is getting out of hand. Soon gossip and rumors lit up the phone lines. Past grievances against one another were rekindled, and hurtful accusations flew in every direction. Angry, inflammatory speech became the mode of communication. Misinformation, fear, suspicion, and distrust abounded. Imagine if social media entered the picture. Friends and family members were recruited to choose sides. The church leadership communicated poorly with the congregation, and the anger and hatred escalated. Within a year, Chapel Hill Church split into two separate groups. Each group claimed to be defending God's truth. There was no desire on the part of either group to seek reconciliation. They were happy to be done with one another. Then he concludes, although the name Chapel Hill Church and this account are both fictional, the behavior attributed to this church is not. The description of the fight at Chapel Hill Church is not an exaggeration. It reflects the attitudes and behaviors seen in countless other church fights and splits, and we all know it. Without the Spirit, any community of believers can be devoured by works of the flesh. Being set free in Christ does not mean complaining, dissension, and squabbling. Complaining, dissension, and squabbling are the works of the flesh. This isn't the fruit of the Spirit. This isn't freedom from law and sin. This is evidence of bondage. The focus here of Paul's exhortations in the letter to the Galatians focuses rightfully and wisely on relationships. Paul challenges his readers not to turn into animals that gnaw at each other and eat one another. The mark of love is the ability of believers to get along with one another. Love for God always results in love for others. We seek our own interests, don't we? Except for the grace of God. And churches are so vulnerable. You know, it's, a, it's really a miracle. In light of this, it's a miracle. There are any Christ-exalting, biblical, gospel-centered churches existing. Love, the fruit of the Spirit, seeks out the interests of others. God knows we love ourselves, and He's calling us by the grace of God to love each other. This is really the greatest work of the Spirit. When we're overly focused on miracles and healings and tongues and prophecy, we, we commit the same error of the Corinthians. We're, we're guilty of the Corinthian error. When you study Paul's letters to the church in Corinth, you will find right in the middle of his discussions on the work of the Spirit, the greatest chapter on love. That's what this is about today. God's Word is calling us to live our Christian life in community together with the Spirit's power. In our text today, Paul gives critical instruction. He gives insight to every believer who is seeking to live for Christ by the grace of God. He imparts wisdom regarding, number one, 
spiritual warfare. Number two, works of the flesh. And finally, the eternal consequences of this battle. We're going to look at all three of these, beginning with spiritual warfare in verses 16 and 17. Verse 16, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He's, he's unpacking for his readers what it means to be set free in Christ to love others. Verse 17, the desires of the flesh, though, are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. There's this great battle being waged in the heart of every believer. And this is why it's so important and so critical and crucial that we walk in the Spirit, that we run in the Spirit, that we stand firm in the power of the Spirit. The flesh and the Spirit are diametrically opposed to one another. Those who live by the Spirit, that's the gift of the new age poured out on the day of Pentecost, are no longer under the realm of law, and they are no longer captive to the power of sin. The law does not produce a transformed life. That's what we've been reading about in this letter. Legalism, rules, do not work against the power of sin. Has no power against these works of the flesh. But the Holy Spirit, given to the one united to Christ by faith, empowers so that believers trust in Christ alone do not gratify the desires of the flesh. And the fruit is obvious. It's a work of the Spirit. The Spirit's doing a broad work. You want revival. You want a time of refreshing. You're crying out to God. Are you, are you looking for healings, miracles, deliverances, tongues? Is overcoming anger included? Is freedom from drunkenness a work of the Spirit in your mind? Is living free from pornography? Is that spiritual power? Are these evidences that the Spirit is present at work? I think Paul would say yes. If your understanding is different your idea and understanding of what God is doing in our midst is too limited. That's the Corinthian era. The greatest work of the Spirit, by far, explicitly taught in our text and throughout the New Testament, the greatest work is love. It's love. That's the power of the Spirit. As soon as a person is made alive spiritually in Christ, they enter a war between the Spirit and the flesh. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. It's talking about the same thing. Which wage war against your soul. If you want to conquer this flesh, you have to appropriate the grace of God. It comes to us through the gospel, through the good news about Christ and Him crucified. It's the power of God 
for salvation. Not a ticket to heaven, a transformed life that leads to heaven. And we have to take possession, appropriate the power of the Spirit that's ours through Jesus Christ. If these believers in Galatia yield to the Judaizers who want them to receive circumcision, they're going to be in debt to the whole law. They're going to be burdened by the law, the rules. They're going to be obligated to keep the whole law. Paul has clearly taught. And no one's going to be justified by the law. It's not the purpose of the law. Receiving circumcision or any other rules that are meant to justify us in God's sight, they, it only leads to bondage. It severs us from grace, from Christ. If a, if a person yields to the desires of the flesh, on the other hand, they remain slaves to sin. Freedom from the law. Freedom from sin is through the gospel. It's through grace. It's through the Spirit. It's, it's not attainable in our own strength. It's the fruit of a powerful work of the Spirit. This is serving others in love, genuinely, cannot be accomplished by those still in the flesh, under the dominion of the flesh in bondage to sinful desires. We need the work of the Spirit. That's what it means to walk, live, run by the Spirit. Verse 16 says, this is a promise. Walk by the Spirit. Here's the promise. Walk by the Spirit and you will not. That's a promise. Gratify the desires of the flesh. That's why he's continually in chapter 5 just coming back to the Spirit. If you live, if you stand, if you are led by, if you keep in step with the Spirit, if you are filled with the Spirit every day, you're refreshed by the ever-present Spirit of God. You will not put into practice the desires of the flesh. They'll be conquered. Can you say victory out there? Come on, some of you charismatics. Amen. Romans 8. The mind that is set on the flesh, the mind that is set on indwelling sin, the desires of the flesh. Romans 8, verse 7. It's hostile to God, for it doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Indwelling sin, says John Owen, is not only said to be enmity, but it is said to be enmity against God. Indwelling sin is enmity against God. It has chosen a great enemy indeed. It is in sundry places proposed as our enemy. 1 Peter 2.11 Abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. They are enemies to the soul. That is to ourselves. Sometimes as an enemy to the spirit that is in us. The flesh lusts or fights against the spirit. It fights against the spirit to conquer it. It fights against our souls 
and against the principles of grace that is in us, but its proper formal object is God. It stands in opposition against God. It is hostile to God. Indwelling sin is opposed to what the Holy Spirit is doing in our life. We are in a war. This this gift of the Spirit has been given to us. We're indwelt by the Spirit if you're a believer. But we're not in heaven yet, are we? And this present evil age remains. The flesh remains an ever-present reality. The desires of the flesh are oppose us at every step when we want to do the things of the Spirit. It's a war. There's no timeouts. It's not a game. It's combat. This is the bad news for you today. No timeouts. All-out war. DEFCON 5. Every day, all day. Constant battle. Constant temptations. Constantly harassed by the flesh as we seek to fulfill real desires that the Holy Spirit has created in us. A desire to glorify God, a desire to love His Word, to serve others, all these good things the Spirit is doing every day, all day, we are opposed. Chris Lungard wrote a great book on this subject called The enemy within. God is love, he says. His nature is unmixed beauty and loveliness. He is eternally excellent and infinitely to be desired above any creature. He has showered his beauty and love on us in his Son, making us new people in him, filling us with hope and expectations of one day living with him in his home, the throne room of love. But the remains of the flesh leave us in an anxious position. Against this God, we carry in us an enmity that cannot be appeased. This is the wearying power of sin in the believer. It won't accept a ceasefire, much less a peace treaty. An invading army can sometimes be persuaded to put down its guns by being given what it wants. Some people think they can quiet flesh's rage the same way. So they look for ways to, quote, gratify the desires of the flesh. This is to put out fire with gasoline. Sin won't quench the flesh. It'll only stoke it. The Spirit is working in believers, so believers have powerful desires to be like Christ, to glorify God, to serve God's purposes. They love God because He first loved them. They have a desire to live a life of love for others, serving them for God's glory. But sin remains. And sin, more than anything else, opposes God. This is how the Bible speaks about sin. This is the biblical doctrine of sin. It's helpful, it's encouraging, it's enlightening. It's freeing. It explains so much. So many Christians are shocked and surprised when they encounter this enemy within. Don't be. Don't be. We're being instructed today. We're given wisdom from God. 
about the Christian life. Verse 17, these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Here is the reason for the war. Now, see if you don't think this sounds like Romans 7. Have you read Romans 7? Verses 21 through the end of the chapter, Paul says this, and and there's a debate about whether it's a Christian, whether he's talking about a Christian or not Christian, because it sounds like Galatians 5.17, I think he's talking about the Christian life. See if you can't relate to this. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, the flesh? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He will deliver me. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He's describing the battle and pointing us to Christ for the great victory. Same battle Paul's talking about here in verse 17. The flesh and the spirit resist one another. This conflict explains why it's so vital that we walk in the Spirit, while we be empowered by the Spirit. If we want to do these desires of the Spirit, we have to have help, don't we? We need God. If we're going to win this battle, we are not self-sufficient. Back when I was a Boy, my my dad was an East Tennessee farmer. One of my greatest joys was going with my dad, walking around the farm with a gun, killing things. Now, I know this is the 21st century, and we can see clearly how bad that is, but I thought that was great to be with my dad for hours on end on our farm looking for things to kill. And one day we were walking on our farm with our gun, getting ready to shoot something, and we heard a cry. You could hear it. It was just a a cry of desperation. And we, we... we walked up over the hill to see what it was, and it was, it was a little baby rabbit with a giant chicken snake coiled around it, squeezing the life out of it, about to open its mouth and swallow it whole. My dad and I were both terrified of snakes, so the only option was to shoot the snake with the gun we brought to kill things with. The problem was, you had a little rabbit, and then a little snake, and then a little rabbit, so you had to hit the snake and not the rabbit. It was tricky. And my dad, from one mile away, (laughs) with open sights, pulled the trigger, hit the snake. Give it up for dad. 
and the snake crawled away. Then, of course, we shot the rabbit because that's what we were doing. We were out killing stuff. <laughs> we did not shoot the rabbit. The rabbit was free. He was free. If he's still alive, he's still going, let me tell you about the miracle that happened to me 50 years ago. You afraid of snakes? Well, let me tell you, there's hope. First time I used that illustration back in the 1800s, I was preaching from Psalm 18. I think we have it to show it to you. Follow along with me in Psalm 18. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. That's what the rabbit was doing. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came to him, reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also, the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and he came down. Now what's your problem today? Paul warns believers about a battle. But the emphasis is on this God. This God who powerfully saves us from our enemies. It's like we, we have a snake wrapped around us about to swallow us whole, but we cry out and we're delivered by a giant friend out of nowhere and set free. This, this is a devastating text. It reveals our sin. It tells us our problem. But don't mistake, Paul expects victory. Verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The law does not work against the power of sin. Those who are led by the Spirit, though, are not under the law. They are free from the law. They walk by the Spirit and they do not gratify the desires of the flesh. The problem is verse 17. The solution is verse 16 and verse 18. The Spirit's empowering presence gives believers the ability to win. It means freedom. They're not under the law. But freedom from law does not, according to Paul, mean freedom to sin. It's always the mistake, isn't it? It means freedom from sin. This is why it's such a disaster for the Galatians to turn to circumcision. Because it severs them from this power. Number two, works of the flesh. Paul imparts wisdom about works of the flesh. The works of the flesh are evident. When you're motivated by the flesh, or if you're motivated by the Spirit, you can tell. You can tell the source of a person's fruit. One theologian says, identifying the works of the flesh does not demand extraordinary spiritual discernment. 
The, the things that the flesh produces are obvious and clear to all. It's first three, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Same, same terms are used for sexual sin, 2 Corinthians 12. Sexual immorality is just a general term. Just refers to any sexual wrongdoing. Impurity is about what happens to a person when they sin sexually. They're unclean. Sensuality refers to the, the lack of restraint. It, it's a reference to passions that overcome, overwhelm all else when a person gives in to the works of the flesh and sexual sin. People behave without any restrictions. Sinful sexual acts, sinful sexual passions are the work of the flesh. Pornography in all its forms is a work of the flesh. It's evident. This week, there was a former Olympic doctor had 150 women testify at his trial of his sexual abuse. It was heartbreaking. He was sentenced to up to 175 years, and he earned it. He deserved it. Their lives, these women, their lives were forever scarred by this man and his works of the flesh. It's evil. Our, our society hates this. But we seem to turn a blind eye to pornography that often fuels this kind of sensuality that brings great harm to people. Whether you're living in the flesh or the Spirit is not a mystery. You can tell. Verse 20, idolatry, sorcery. These are two sins that focus on false worship. The refusal to worship the one true God. Idolatry to Paul, it's a fundamental sin. It's at the base of everything. A failure to praise and thank God for His, for his goodness and instead turn to idols. He calls coveting idolatry in Colossians 3 because it's a reference to these ruling desires i got to have. Sorcery, mag magic. It, it, it turns people away from, from seeking God. Instead, they go somewhere else to try to manipulate their circumstances. They call out to something else rather than God. And then in verse, the second part of Verse 20, Paul lists the social sins. Listen to this. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These are the, the social sins that disrupt the church. And Paul uses eight terms. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, And then he ends, and things like these. Because this is not an exhaustive list. Those who give themselves to these things, those who practice these things. Finally, Paul warns, will not inherit the kingdom of God. This battle 
has eternal consequences. Number three, verse 21, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Doing these works of the flesh is not something we can overlook. Paul says those who do such things, those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom. They're not going to enter God's presence on the last day. They're not going to go to heaven. They will be judged with the wicked. They exclude people from the kingdom of God. This is something Paul repeats throughout his writings. One, one scholar said it's a staple of Pauline proclamation. Thomas Schreiner, in his commentary on Galatians, says it this way, Righteousness by faith instead of works of law must not lead to a life of sin. Those who are justified by God's grace are also empowered by the Spirit to live in a new way. If the works of the flesh dominate, then no eschatological reward will be received. No end-time reward on the day of Christ. There'll be no reward. Good works are not the basis of justification, but they are most certainly, though, still imperfect and partial, a consequence of justification. Paul says in verse 21, as I warned you before, he's said this before to them. He constantly repeats this, and he does it for a, a reason. He, had, he said, as I warned you before, when he was with them, he had warned them in the same way, and now he's writing them, and he's warning them again, and he wants, and God wants all of us as believers to be warned today through God's Word. There are eternal consequences. that come from this war that you, if you are a believer, are in. R.C. Sproul had a friend who had a favorite saying. He would say, there are three kinds of people in the world, those who can count and those who can't. Don't, don't look at your friend and say, I don't get it, okay? <laughs> don't do that. Just laugh. <laughs> there aren't three alternatives here. According to Jesus in the church, there are good trees and bad trees. In the church, there are sheep and goats. There are those who are truly saved and those who aren't in the church those regenerated by the Spirit, and those who are not regenerated. Those who are born again, made alive in Christ, and those who aren't. There is no middle ground regarding our standing in the kingdom of God. You're either born of the Spirit or still in the flesh. There are false professors in the church. But even though they go to church, they are not born again. They are faking it. They may be deceived about this, and they often are, 
And this is why Paul issues this warning, and every faithful church should issue this warning repeatedly. According to Christ, believers are required to make a profession of faith in Christ. But a mere profession saves no one. There are those, Jesus said, who profess with their lips, but their heart is far from the Lord. The question verse 21 is asking us this morning is, are you a Christian or are you not? Paul said to the Corinthians in chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves, or, you, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? The question is, are you in a state of justification or not? A good tree does not bear bad fruit. A bad, a rotten tree doesn't bear good fruit. Every tree is known by its fruit. Now, remember, Luther said, and we've studied in Galatians, that the only righteousness for which we will be determined righteous in the sight of God is apart from us. It's an alien righteousness. Here's the good news. Here's the gospel. It's a righteousness that doesn't properly belong to us. We haven't performed for this. We haven't achieved it. It's somebody else's righteousness. It's the righteousness of our Savior. This is the main theme of Galatians. It was the focus of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. We've discussed it repeatedly. Right standing with God is by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. The minute I put my trust in him, he covers all my transgressions. He, he covers my sin. And God pronounces me just in his sight. I am a justified sinner by faith. I come with nothing in my hand. I come with no good deeds. No list of achievements. I can't go to the gate of God's presence and say, you should welcome me in because I never miss church. You might be able to if you say, I was on time every time. <laughs> Little joke. We can't come into God's prayer. We can't commend ourselves. I never miss church. I was a deacon. Or better yet, I was on the setup team. I read through the Bible in a year. I didn't drink alcohol. I didn't go to bad movies. None of this is going to commend us. I love my wife. His is a throne of grace, not works. The only thing that will get us into the presence of God is the righteousness of Christ. This begged the question in the 16th century and begs the question today, what about works? What about works? What about good works? Doesn't Jesus call us to good works? Isn't the Lord concerned about the fruit we produce in our lives? If we're born again, 
If we're justified sinners, will we not manifest that by the fruit we bear in our lives? The controversy is age-old since the beginning. Anytime the church teaches properly the grace of God, this question is going to be raised. A few years ago, it was the Lordship Salvation Controversy. Most of you probably know nothing about it. But there were some people who said you could be saved if you put your trust in Christ, if you embrace Him as Savior, and yet do not embrace Him as your Lord, you can still be saved. Justification is by faith and faith alone. So you can have a faith that is alone, a faith that never bears fruit, a faith that doesn't produce good works, and you can still go to heaven. You can still be justified. You can still be carnal. You can still be in the flesh. You can still be in a place where there is no spiritual fruit whatsoever. You can be a carnal Christian, someone who receives Christ as their Savior so that He comes into their lives but not necessarily onto the throne of their lives as their Lord. They are still in the flesh. They are still doing the works of the flesh, but saved, even though there is no fruit. And their works indicate this. This doesn't seem to mesh well with Galatians chapter 5. Because that's not biblical. It's not biblical doctrine. This this is not Luther's doctrine. Luther said it this way, justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. The only kind of faith that saves you is a legitimate faith, a living faith, not a, a dead profession of faith. If you have faith, even though the works you produce out of that faith do not count at all towards your justification. Nevertheless, they are necessary. They are manifestations. They are fruit of that living, true faith. And if you don't have them, you do not have saving faith. James, the Lord's brother, said it this way. And we're going to study the book of James for this reason. You see that a person is justified by works. This is what he's talking about. Everything I just said. And not by faith alone. Justification is by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. So examine yourself. We all should examine ourselves. This is a gift. You think I got up this morning and say, I know what I want to do. I want to make everybody in the room mad. <laughs> this is why you do expository preaching, why you go through books, because it forces a preacher to talk about this kind of stuff. I want you to like me. But we all need to examine ourselves. Are you a sheep or just a goat in the church? Now listen, if you are a person that battles condemnation and depression and discouragement, 
Do not try to answer this question. Do not listen to yourself. I can tell you right now what yourself is going to say. I've been telling you this all week. You're a loser, man. You're no Christian. You need to ask somebody else. In fact, it'd be good for all of us to do that. If we're convicted, there's going to be genuine believers in here justified by faith alone. They're the ones that are going to have a super sensitive conscience and they're going to have a hard time. Everybody needs to examine themselves. How do you know if you're saved? Not by their words. You'll know them by their fruit. Live your Christian life by the power of the Spirit. What counts according to our text, according to Galatians 5, is faith working through love. That's what counts. Faith working through love. Faith in Christ. Trusting Him for justification. Trusting Him for an alien, foreign righteousness that we didn't earn, but counted righteous in His sight. And then receiving the grace of God, the power of the Spirit because of Christ. We're united to Him by faith and filled with His Spirit. And when you live by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We're going to return to worship. But the pastors are going to be here after this meeting to pray for you regardless, to counsel you, to talk to you. This is the kind of message we want to be available for you. So if you need to talk, if you would like to be prayed for, for whatever reason this text brought to mind, after we end our singing today, come, come to the front. We'd love to talk to you. Father, I thank God today, Lord. I thank you that this room is filled with genuine believers. And I pray today, Lord, more than anything else, that every believer would be filled with gratefulness that they have a Savior from their sin. Not only to forgive them from their sins, not only to justify them by faith, but Lord, to empower them so they can win this battle against the flesh, against the devil, and against this world. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. We're going to return to singing. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.